You're listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter. Welcome to the August 20 edition of America's Voice for Energy. While there's so much been going on this week, it was difficult for me to know what to write for my column this week. I originally thought, I'll write about the Gold King mine spill. You know, the uh, accident that the EPA had that turned the Animas River orange? Well, that was in New Mexico. Well, actually, the spill happened in Colorado, but the, the photo that you saw on the news so frequently was from New Mexico. And being based in New Mexico, that seemed like a logical topic for me to address. However, it got a lot of news coverage, and if you're a regular listener to America's Voice for Energy or a regular reader of my weekly column, you know that I like to address topics that are not being widely covered elsewhere. I feel like if a whole lot of other people are covering it, maybe I don't have so much to add to the conversation. But if there's a topic that that seems to be under the radar that needs attention, that's what I like to do. So while I was kind of debating, should I do this EPA spill or should I not, a source sent me some links to some articles about the waters of the U.S. rule, which I had not followed. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't really followed it because I do energy issues, and that was a water issue. So I hadn't closely followed it. But as I read what was sent to me, I was alarmed to discover that this rule, which redefines waters of the U.S., was going to be final and implemented effective on August 28th. Now, while I was debating, still, do I write on waters of the U.S. or do I write on the EPA spill, I got a call from my good friend and mentor, Paul Dreesen, and found out that he was going to write on the mine spill. I thought, well, that makes my decision easy because if he's going to write on it, I don't need to. So I'm delighted to have back with us today on America's Voice for Energy, my friend and mentor, Paul Dreesen, Senior Policy Analyst with CFAC Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And Paul's going to help us kind of connect the dots in this first segment of America's Voice for Energy because I find it amazing that this agency that has polluted the Animus River by careless activity uh, that this particular agency now wants to have control of all of the waters of the U.S. So, Paul, thanks for joining me today. I know we're going to have a great discussion that's going to go by very quickly. Yeah, we certainly are, and the ironies just are boundless. I mean, it's just incredible that EPA is going to step in and stomp on people for anything they do in their backyards, anything they want to do on their own property uh, to protect the waters of the United States, every last drop of them, when they come in and it only takes them one day of being on a mine site to totally screw up hundreds of miles of western state rivers all the way into Lake Powell the drinking water and irrigation water and stock livestock water for thousands and thousands of people it's just amazing to me now you brought something up in, in your comments there that i haven't heard were they they were they only on the site for one day yeah they got on site i believe it was august 4th and by 10 o'clock 10 30 on august 5th they had already busted open the mine and let loose over three million gallons of Polluted water, you know, and oh my people, gosh. Don't, people 
really don't understand how much water that is. If you take a football field, and that's 360 feet by 160 feet, and you fill it up to a, a, a pool that size, filled up to seven feet deep, that's three million gallons. So you back Yeah, I read that in your comment. It was, it was, that's an excellent way to help us visualize that quantity of water. And let me mention, I, I, I said you're, you were writing on this, and let me, before we run, I don't want to run out of time at the end, how can people find your article that you wrote on this particular spill? It's on all kinds of websites all over the U.S. and Canada. Canada Free Press, cfact.org, uh, townhall.com, uh, The Moral Liberal, lots of different places. So and what is, the name, is, what is the name of the article so people can do a search for it? The article is called EPA's Gross Negligence at Gold King. So just Google my name and Gold King and it'll start popping up all over. Good. Okay. Sorry. I just I want I was afraid we're going to run out of time, and I want to make sure that we get that in so people can can look that up. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, when you've got that amount of water and you're backing it up hundreds of feet into a mine, uh, uphill into adits and slopes. Those are technical terms for the different parts of the mine where you're digging ore out or having rooms to process set up equipment and so forth. You're building up a huge head of steam for that water. It's, you know, anytime you've got water up going up a hill, when you let loose and it comes down that hill and then it starts traveling hundreds and thousands of feet downhill from 11,500 feet down uh, into the river valleys all the way to Lake Powell, you've got a huge head of steam with that water and it's going to carry all these sediments that are loaded with toxic metals. The water that was leaking out of the mine had some of that in it, but it was coming out uh, without the sediments and it was coming out at a steady but fairly slow trickle. Um, yeah, I was going to ask much you that. To so the it wasn't really polluting the stream down below to any significant or noticeable degree. People were drinking out of the out of the stream, the uh, uh, the creeks and the rivers there. No problem at all for people, wildlife, or anything, or their stock. But once so, so from your research, why did the EPA decide to come in and deal with this mine? And is this an isolated incident? I mean, I know the spill is isolated, but the the EPA and the mines, the abandoned mines, which was from 1923, if I recall correctly, um, why did they decide to come in and do this? Well, they've they've been on kind of a uh, an agenda to go in and they say clean up these mines that have been abandoned for decades uh, and try to cure any and then these were from problems. a different these were from a different era before a mining oh, yeah. company had to put up put up a bond are, modern mines are well run and they've got all kinds of sudden ponds and different things that are under all kinds of rules that didn't apply a century ago so right. uh what we're trying to do now is go around the western states and clean up the ones that are problematical. There are a lot, thousands of these abandoned mines. A lot of them just don't do much of anything. Some of them leak a little bit of contaminated water. But for the most part, uh, they don't pose a real threat to people unless somebody goes inside and that caves in. EPA wants to designate a bunch of them as Superfund sites. And the people that own the land or the mines where these are uh, located often then the people around them 
like the uh, the city of um, the, uh, Silverton, Silverton. Near the closest town near this particular mine, didn't want it designated as a Superfund Site A because it wasn't that big of a deal uh, of a problem, but B because so they weren't they weren't going. Those people in the town nearby, they weren't bothering, hounding the EPA weekly. Come clean this up. Come clean this up. We want you to fix this. Just the opposite. They didn't want it designated a Superfund site because that would chase away all kinds of tourists that they rely on for a big chunk of their income. Yeah, I've been to Silverton They were working hard to start to get this uh, the problem that they had analyzed fixed up, and they were working on that. EPA came in and started threatening the mine owner with fines of $35,000 a day if he didn't let them come on site and fix this problem. But as I said, it only took them 24 hours to unleash this torrent, this toxic flash flood, send it down the rivers for hundreds of miles and pollute all kinds of waterways. Wow. It's shocking um, what they did, and, and you know, and their response to it because you, everyone knows that if the mine owner, for example, had done this, uh, they would be hung up, hung out to dry. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you just take a look at what EPA normally says and what the environmentalists normally say. We're not going to tolerate any negligence. Chemicals are toxic at even parts per billion. There's no safe threshold, and contaminated water is going to be unsafe for years, and even little trace amounts of mercury justify shutting down coal-fired power plants, and these criminal corporate polluters are going to pay. We're going to keep our boots on their necks, and all of a sudden it's epa that did the damage and all the epa officials do a complete about face while the the democrats and the environmentalists are running around defending the agency and trying to change the story shift the blame so now all of a sudden we're hearing oh epa just miscalculated how much water it backed up there they were trying to stick a pipe into the top of the mine to pump out the liquid safely so they could treat it we were very careful they said contaminate the uh, contaminated waters flowing too fast to be an immediate health threat and then less than a week after this massive spill uh, epa administrator gina, gina mccarthy comes in and she says oh let's not worry the river's already restoring itself back to pre-incident levels and the water's safe to drink already you would never hear that as you said from epa if it had been a minor mining company that had caused this spill all yeah, yeah. I, I've done several inter- radio interviews not uh, on my, my column this week, of which this, this topic is a piece, which is why we're talking with you about it today. And I said, you know, I followed the Deepwater Horizon incident, and I wrote a column on that at the five-year anniversary back a few months ago. And, you know, many of their claims of of catastrophe didn't happen, didn't come through. And so I said, you know, I, I suspect that what's going on with this river uh, is not going to be as bad as anybody thinks it is. And, and you know, that has come true, but yet they wouldn't say that about uh, if it was an oil spill. I mean, there was an incident a few years back on that very same river where some debris was washed into the river in a storm. And it turns out it was just sticks and leaves and things. But people thought that it, there was the enviros were up in arms over this was from the oil industry and this was you know and it turned out it was nothing but you know, they would not take that attitude if it if it was a spill from someone else. 
Absolutely. You know, I am one of the few people in the United States that has actually been scuba diving underneath the very platform where the infamous Santa Barbara oil spill occurred in 1969. The place is a magnificent ecosystem. It really is. But you never hear that from the environmentalists. To this day, they claim that that whole area was permanently uh, despoiled and ruined and polluted. Um, So you're really dealing with some horrible double standards. My thought and my hope is that we're going to use this incident here to re-examine and rethink some of these rules and standards for what is really toxic and the fact that rivers really do clean themselves up. The problem here is that the the real pollution was in the toxic, the uh, sediments that were sitting in the mine, the water that was leaking out was coming from above the sediments, and it wasn't carrying the sediments into the creek. You could see that just by looking at the creek. It was looked crystal clear. Uh-huh. When EPA unleashed that flash flood, it carried these sediments for miles and miles and miles uh, and left a turmeric yellow uh, colored sediments all along the stream beds so not only does it mean when you touch those sediments you're getting some of that contamination on yourself but it means every time there's a heavy rain or a snow melt in the spring you're going to stir up those sediments and going to back into the water column and you're going to have to test the water again and make sure it's still safe to drink and stuff uh the interesting and we're about out of time paul Okay, let me wrap up by just saying this. EPA has said, well, we'll pay for some of the damages and some of the extra costs that people are incurring. But implied in that is as long as the river is not safe to drink and so forth. So now by declaring that it's safe to drink and safe to use for irrigation and livestock, they can dump their uh, promise in the in the river there and not have to worry about paying anybody much of anything. So they're going to get yeah. themselves off the hook, not like BP or ExxonMobil or anybody else has gotten off the hook. Paul, I'm way over. You want, you want to do another segment? I'm way over. Do you want to do another segment? Yeah, we might as well as long as we're doing this. And All right. Stay tuned, sure. folks. We'll be right back with Paul Dreesen. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. 
On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Paul and I were having such a great discussion, and I happen to have time today. had a little wiggle room in the schedule, so I asked Paul to stay with us because this is really an important topic, and Paul, you and I didn't in our first segment have the opportunity to lead into how this impacts the waters of the U.S. rule and so forth. So for those of you who might be just joining us, we're talking with Paul Dreesen, who is a senior policy analyst with CFACT Committee for a constructive tomorrow. And we're talking about the Gold uh, King Mine EPA spill. And uh, so we, we just kind of decided spontaneously at the end of the last segment to continue on here. And uh, so, Paul, you know, go ahead and, and pick up with – you kind of ended because I didn't tell you we were going to go another segment. But where, what, what didn't we cover? Where do we need to go now? Well, as I was saying, EPA is going to kind of absolve itself of any responsibility to continue paying for anybody's costs and lost livelihoods and so forth uh, by simply decreeing that the water is magically safe to drink again and nobody's got to worry about it. But there are some big issues here, and, and the big one to me is how cavalierly EPA handled all of this. I talked to some mining engineers. They said it would have been smart prudent, the normal thing to do to just take a four-inch pipe and push it up through the rubble into the mine, and then you can measure the water pressure. You can test the water, see how toxic it really is, and you can calculate how much water is backed up in the mine. They would have known it was three million gallons, and they would have been a little more careful. They didn't do any of that. They were horribly, uh, grossly negligent by any standards of law, and they didn't even bother to build a little coffer dam below the portal just to catch any water that did happen to get out. So they were grossly negligent here, and they should not be able to absolve themselves for paying for all these costs that people are going to incur and all their lost incomes in the coming months and years as a result of this incident. So, so uh, what, what's the option there? The option is you just accept that you, you're going to be treat yourself according to the EPA needs to treat itself the same way it would treat a coal company or ExxonMobil or BP or any other mining or other company that is involved in a uh, project that and that uh, spills pollutants into a body of water, and they should be covered covering people's uh, in lost incomes, the cost of bringing in uh, replacement water from hundreds of miles away, various other things that are normal when you have an accident like this. But EPA, of course, doesn't want to do that, and they don't want to penalize any of their officials that were responsible for this. They don't want to demote or discipline anyone or fire them. Uh, so we're going to see some very interesting uh, 
discussions, shall we say, among EPA officials, the media, the public, and members of Congress that are going to have oversight on this. I think the other thing that we need to be talking about ultimately is what, how, val- how valid are these standards for the uh, toxicity of various levels of pollution, whether it's a heavy metal or some other kind of contaminant. Um, the EPA has what they call no threshold of safety, uh, that if uh, a 1,000 parts per million is bad, then even one part per billion is equally bad is their attitude, and we know that's not the case. But EPA develops these standards in secret. It imposes them heavily on corporate polluters and uh yet here it wants to exempt itself. So maybe this is a good time to take a look at those and see whether these standards that they've developed are really based on science. Um, There's a concept called hormesis, which I think is really important for people to understand. That means that if you've got uh, radiation or a chemical or a metal involved here, at a low concentration, it can really be beneficial to your body. You need a certain amount of selenium or iron and various sure. things in your body to meet your biological needs as a living human being. Uh, a little radiation they find, whether it's radon or something else, protects your body against cancer. And by the same token, high doses, higher doses of chemicals or metals or radiation become harmful. The question becomes, at what level do these things stop being beneficial and actually become harmful? EPA's attitude is there's no tolerance, there's no safe threshold level. Any of these things is bad at any amount, period. And that's... Yeah, you know, you mentioned that... I have to chime in here and tell a quick story. When I first got involved in these issues, you know, I've been doing this now, Paul. It'll be eight years next month that I started in this role with the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Uh, It's hard to believe that it's been that long, but I cut my teeth. The very first public hearing I ever went to in my entire life was uh, in support of uranium mining in New Mexico. And I remember at those hearings, the antis, the people who were opposed to that, standing up and pounding on the table and saying, and you may have heard me say this before, but there is no acceptable amount of radiation. And I was new to this, and so I had to call a couple experts and say, help me. I mean, isn't there radiation out there everywhere? Don't we get radiation every time we go in the sun? Isn't there radiation from our granite countertops? I mean, you know, am I wrong on this? And and no, I was not wrong on this. But they make this claim, just like what you're saying, that, you know, well, some of it is good, um, and a lot of it may be bad, but if a lot of it's bad, they say, oh, there is no acceptable amount. And that's just junk science. That's just bogus. It's fear-mongering, and it's used very selectively. We always hear about Three Mile Island, but in the aftermath of Three Mile Island, I remember the stories and the analyses that said 
The amount of radiation released by Three Mile Island during the nuclear catastrophe, as the EPA and the environmentalists were trying to characterize it, was equivalent to flying coast to coast in a jetliner, or it was mm-hmm. equivalent to spent to living a couple months in Leadville, Colorado, at a higher altitude, where you're getting bombarded by gamma radiation and so forth. Uh, So we know that's nonsense, but the environmentalists have gotten away with this for years and years. EPA uses it as a sledgehammer to come down hard on all sorts of people that have had some minor problems. They're using it as a justification to impose the waters of the United States or WOTUS rules. And I find it self-serving, certainly causes all kinds of uh, economic hardship in the United States. And the bottom line is the regulations themselves are having more of a harmful effect on people's lives, livelihoods, living standards, health, and welfare than the supposed dangers the regulations are allegedly guarding against. So the regulations themselves are more harmful than the supposed harm. Yeah, which brings us uh, uh, to uh, the waters of the U.S. And again, because you were part of my life at this, I want, I'm going to tell another quick story. When I first in this line of work, as you know, Paul, I attended a so-called secret meeting in Washington, D.C. in January of 2007. And, and you were there and uh, have been there at other times when I have been there. But when I first went to that meeting, and again, remember, I do energy, but I'm new at this at that time, they were all talking about, and you'll remember this, the Oberstar bill. And they kept talking about this bill from Representative Oberstar, a Democrat from Minnesota, who since passed away. But he was trying to pass this this uh, bill that would remove the word navigable from the waters uh, or from the Clean Water Act. And at the time, when I first went to this meeting, uh, this was a group, of, a private property rights group. And I remember, and I don't know if it, was, if it was first year or another year, but there were often kind of average plain citizens there, not, not to be critical of them, but they weren't political activists at all. And I remember one, one older woman who, when we went around the room and she said why she was there, she told about that she lives, if I, I believe, it was in Virginia, and she has a stream going through the back of her property, and she wanted to build a gazebo or something on the back of her property so she could sit out there in the evening and have a glass of wine. I maybe made the wine part up, but and sit by the stream, you know, enjoy her property. And one day she got a knock on the door from the EPA saying, you who you cannot build this gazebo because it's X amount of feet from the stream, and so this is a wetland. Do you remember that story or something yes, similar to that? And you, you're absolutely right on it. And the interesting thing was all of her neighbors had gazebos and uh, decks, but EPA suddenly decided her gazebo or deck was going to impact the wetland. It's just absolutely insane the way they do this. So I guess the point of your story is that Overstar tried again and again to get this this change through Congress, and every time they shot him down, they did not want to remove the word navigable from the statute because they knew EPA would then use the missing words as a justification to come in and start controlling every drop of water in the United States, which is exactly what they plan to do now. A side story is 
the climate change laws, the, all this anti-carbon dioxide, all this anti-coal and that now anti-natural gas effort by EPA to just shut down our power generation in, in the United States. Congress considered and rejected, voted down 700 separate climate-related bills over the last 12 or 20 years. And so EPA says, well... I'm frustrated that and President Obama is the lead on all of this. We are frustrated that, he, that Congress won't do what we want them to do. So there's more than one way to skin a cat, a catfish. We're going to come in and we're just going to issue these trees by regulatory fiat. If Congress doesn't act, we will. We will do what Congress refuses to do, even though they are the legislative body and we're supposed to just implement the laws as written by Congress. They come in and they're just going to imp- they're going to write and implement. They will be judge, jury, and executioner for these laws from now on. And that's how they got the clean air stuff changed for climate change and shutting down coal plants. And now they're changing the water laws to come in and be able to control every bit of that and when they actually come on somebody's property to do it we end up with the gold king mine disaster yeah and that sets us up perfectly for our next couple segments in the second half of our show we're going to be talking with kareen foster from the independent petroleum association of new mexico and lee fuller from the independent petroleum association of america talking about how this uh waters of the u.s rule is going to impact the oil and gas industry uh, specifically. So, Paul, thanks for joining me once again on America's Voice for Energy. I'm glad we could have this extra segment together so we could more fully develop this topic. Thanks for having me, Marita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Be segment number two, and we will begin in three, two, one. 
Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the waters of the U.S. rule. And in our first half of the show today, we talked more specifically about the EPA bungling the uh, mine cleanup and their contamination of the Animus River. And do you want these people regulating more, taking more control, and perhaps impacting your backyard? Well, the reality is the new waters of the U.S rule gives the EPA huge new authorities. And because our show, America, uh, America's Voice for Energy, yeah, that's the name of our show, I started to say Energy Makes America Great, which, by the way, I should mention is the organization of which I serve as executive director, Energy Makes America Great, and you can find that at energymakesamericagreat.org. But since this show, America's Voice for Energy, is a show where we talk about energy issues, we're going to shift in the second half of the show here to talk about the waters of the U.S. rule and how it will impact um, America's energy uh, production. So I'm delighted to have Lee Fuller with us for this segment. And Lee is the Executive Vice President of the Independent Petroleum Association of America. Lee, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us here. Happy to be here. So the waters of the U.S. rule, as I mentioned in my column, the, the big issue is that word navigable, which Congress never could get removed, despite repeated efforts from those who want bigger, more government control and want to restrict uh, economic development in America. Uh, and they never could get that word removed, so EPA's kind of done an end run and gone around it by claiming that any water that has a significant nexus with navigable waters uh, is now going to be under control regulation of the EPA. How does that change things for folks in the energy industry? Well, it's, it's the, as you touched on earlier, it's the sweep of, of the scope of regulation. If you understand why the word navigable is in the Clean Water Act, it really goes back to the fact that the, the law is based on the Constitution's authority for the federal government to be involved with navigation and navigable waters. And that concept had been in place, you know, obviously, since the Constitution was was passed and, and, and ratified. When the Clean Water Act was uh, written and passed in 1972, uh, it initially relied on previous definitions of navigable waters that had been in place, I think, probably as far back as the 1899 Rivers and Harbors Act, which were truly then looking at navigable waters, waters where you had ships and barges moving in, and maybe their adjacent wetlands. But the final law, when it came out of the conference negotiation, used the term waters of the United States without defining it. And since that point in time, there's been this ongoing controversy over whether um, the, the scope of the jurisdiction was confined to navigable waters or a broader definition. Uh, and obviously the broader it gets, the more it starts moving into essentially what becomes a an issue between where the government can control what goes on or whether the private property owner controls what goes on on that particular piece of land or that particular wetland or, or water area. And and, and that's, that's really why it's become such a significant issue here because um, the, the use of the term significant nexus 
It comes from a Supreme Court case that was decided some years ago, Rapanos, where the court divided 4-4 and 1 with the 1 vote basically allowing the the uh, EPA interpretation of the Corps of Engineers interpretation of navigable waters or scope of the Clean Water Act to be overturned, uh, it raised uh, the the judgment, uh, the judge who wrote that opinion, Justice Kennedy, used the term significant nexus. Now what we see is EPA trying to build its arguments on its scope of jurisdiction using the same term with the expectation this case will go back to the Supreme Court and if they can show Justice Kennedy that that they, they responded to his concerns, they can get a 5-4 a vote to sustain whatever scope they choose to capture in the, in the new regulations. So uh, you've explained that, the, the long-term battle. Uh, well, do you think that, I mean, obviously this is going to go to the Supreme Court, I believe. Do you agree with that? I, I believe it will, yes. And uh, based on Kennedy's, uh, actually, I guess I'm thinking of Scalia's uh, judgments that he's or his decisions that he's written. Do, what do you think? Will, where where do you think this will go with the Supreme Court? Well, I think the question will be um, whether Kennedy will uh, go with uh, Scalia and the uh, other judges who tended to look at and, and did in earlier cases too, constraining the scope of the clean water jurisdiction. Uh, there's some very subtle issues here in the sense that Kennedy talks about a significant nexus with respect to navigable waters. EPA is taking that term and making it uh, more or less a significant nexus uh, to any kind of, 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 of water, and, and, and that may be beyond where Kennedy was laying out what he thought was the proper scope of the act. That's not going to get decided until it gets back to the Supreme Court, and, and, and it will depend on how the, the EPA, how well EPA is able to convince uh, Justice Kennedy that, that they've, they've adhered to his perception of where the scope of the law should be. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you, are you, is the Independent Petroleum Association of America part of the lawsuits? We're involved with some of the suits. Yeah, there's a large number of suits that are being um, uh, put together by a wide array of uh, interests uh, to, to, to pursue this issue, some of them being states. Uh, this is a huge issue for uh, much of the agricultural community because uh, it can reach into their you know, agricultural practices, farming and ranching on their land. And where right. the federal government can come in and tell them what they can or can't do with their land. So it it's uh, it's significant there. It's significant to a lot of communities because it can affect their ability to grow. The way it uh, plays out within the law, uh, it, it falls in several different sections, but one of the significant ones is Section 404 of the Clean Air Act, which is popularly described as dredge and fill. It's essentially what can you do to that land without getting a permit? Can you dig it up? Can you plant it? Uh, can you build something on it? Can you um, put a flood protection uh, a barrier on it? Uh, those are all issues that uh, get involved with getting permits, and obviously some of those are pretty straightforward. If I use my little example. If I'm having flooding and I'm next to a river, chances are I've got to get a permit. But if I'm a farmer someplace upstream with a, a dry arroyo that gets water once or twice a year, 
that's a very different um, uh, set of circumstances, and, and, and that's the reason why the issue becomes so significant to landowners. Yeah, you've done, a, again, a good job of kind of explaining, which I didn't really cover in my column. I didn't cover the, the legal uh, concerns and what, what it really means. So, again, obviously for farmers and agricultural ranching purposes, this they're, they're really uh, fighting this. What, what impact does it have on the oil and gas industry? Uh, the, the two places it most frequently arises within the oil and gas industry is, one, the dredge and fill issue. If we're... Uh, trying to you know, drill wells in an area, and we have to build roads into it. We have to berm up the area to put the drilling rig on it. So there's a lot of earth movement that has to take place in order to drill, yeah. drill the well. Then the question is, do I have to get a permit before I can do that from the federal government, from the Corps of Engineers? And, and this has previously, that kind of activity as previously or currently is regulated by the states. Is that correct? Well, no, dredge and fill is generally regulated by the Corps of Engineers. It's a question of where it's regulated. In our, in our situation here, it's much more where it's regulated. Um, uh, you know, it, it's obvious if I'm in the wetlands of uh, Louisiana, most likely I'm probably going to have to get a dredge and fill permit to do that. But if I'm out in Colorado someplace in an area that doesn't have much rainfall, it's a very different, you know, decision tree to go through, and and that's that's where this uh, uh, sweep of, of jurisdiction can bring areas that you wouldn't normally believe are wetland areas under under the scope of a permit. And if I don't get the permit, uh, then I, I'm I'm facing liabilities for not getting the permit. If I go in for the permit, then I'm in a federal permitting process that can delay, you know, for a long time, depending on what kind of opposition. Um, may arise to issuing the permit. The, the second area that it, that it uh, typically arises in is a part of the act called spill prevention, control, and countermeasures, where you have to have a plan, <clears throat> plan to protect uh, against any kind of a spill at a site, and you have to put certain equipment in to make sure that that spill doesn't get into, uh, into a, a water body. Uh, the criteria for having to do those plans is you have to have a certain amount of oil and you have to have the potential of getting into uh, a jurisdictional water. So for areas, again, out in arid areas, probably have not had to have a plan, but suddenly they may have to have a plan, and when they do, they have to go in and build equipment around their tanks, or not equipment so much as berms around their tanks, uh, in order to, to make sure that any spill there wouldn't get out of the facility area. And that's costly, obviously, and if it's not near water, then there's no really uh, need to pursue it. But this could move a lot of those types of operations into uh, uh, the federal permitting regime under the uh, Clean Water Act. Now, at this point, there's really nothing that can be done. Uh, Congress can't do anything about this at this point, can they? Well, they would have to come in and uh, either specifically override the legislation, the, the regulation, or they'd have to modify the Clean Water Act in some way. But looking at the gridlock that we have in Congress and the fact that whatever they passed would have to be then signed by the president, it's unlikely right. that, that, that realistically there's very much they can do. So it's in the court's hands at this point. That's the, the, the best characterization, yes. And I know that the, that a lot of the... the uh, lawsuits are looking for an injunction uh, regarding the, the 
waters of the U.S. rule. Uh, do you have any gut feeling of is that going to happen or not? Uh, it's very difficult to get injunctions um, in in these uh, federal court cases. It's a it's a rapidly growing concern. You're not only seeing it here in this uh, WOTUS issue, but um, some of the other uh, uh, air regulations that have uh, some sweeping impacts on what types of power generation can occur. Those events, if they're not enjoined, would have to move forward. Now, we're uh, occasionally, uh, you do have some success. IPAA is involved in litigation regarding a Bureau of Land Management uh, drilling regulation, and uh, the courts were willing to uh, stay the in the implementation of that regulation while they get more information to determine whether the impacts would have you know, irreversible effects that would justify enjoining it until the court case could be decided. But that's a, a, a generally a, a fairly high bar for um, the, the uh, uh, plaintiffs to uh, succeed in getting the courts to agree to enjoin the implementation of a regulation. Well, I certainly am hopeful that following the, the Supreme Court's decision on the MAPS rule, which by the time it was ruled that had virtually no effect, I'm hoping that uh, they'll, they will do an injunction on this. Lee Fuller, Senior Vice President for the Independent Petroleum Association of America, thanks for explaining the waters of the U.S. rule to us, and uh, we'll watch to see what happens. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to be on your show. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of today's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the waters of the U.S. rule, which will be finalized on August 28th. Uh, it will go into effect. It was already published in the Federal Register on June 28th, 29th, and on August 28th it will go into effect unless... A federal judge issues an injunction, and uh, we're going to talk next with Corrine Foster, who is the uh, executive director of the Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico, and she and I work closely together on issues within New Mexico, and I appreciate, Corrine, you taking the time to join us today. Now, in the last segment, we were talking with Lee Fuller, and we concluded with are we going to get an injunction? What do you think? So, Corrine, what's your opinion? Well, uh, I am an attorney as well, and um, I do work very closely with IPAA. I'm grateful that they have gotten involved in this uh, lawsuit. But um, I'm a little bit more hopeful than Mr. Fuller. I think that um, we will get an injunction simply because of the fact that uh, at this point, nearly every state in the union has filed um, for the injunction um, in various district courts in the U.S., 
and uh, the ag community, frankly, is up in arms. And the reason is because this uh, rule, which is supposed to pertain to clean water, um, is actually uh, it's actually muddied the water so much that we really can't even tell what the jurisdiction of this agency is after this new rule or this new interpretation. So I think uh, if a federal judge in one of these multiple cases will find that uh, this rule impacts way too many people, is very unclear, and therefore an injunction uh, should be required uh, in this case so that we can kind of let things settle and figure out what's going on. Uh, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm more hopeful. Um, I think that uh, somewhere around August 28th, very soon, that uh, a federal judge will say, you know, let, let's, uh, you know, stop this runaway train and figure out where we really are. Yeah, I'm, I'm more hopeful along with you. And as I mentioned at the conclusion of the last segment, the Supreme Court's maps rule, everybody realizes, I think, that by the time that rule came out, or at least everybody that follows these things, not everybody, but that by the time the Supreme Court's decision came out, uh, while the Supreme Court clearly smacked down the EPA, everybody said, so what? It doesn't matter because... It's taken so long to get through the court system that all of the agencies involved, uh, all of the co businesses, companies, utilities, they've already spent all the money. They've already done everything to meet this rule. And so by the time the rule was handed out, by, by the time the Supreme Court decision came out, it had virtually no impact. And so it's my hope, and, and, you know, I'm an optimist. I tell people I couldn't do this work I do and get out of bed every day if I wasn't an optimist. But um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that that will factor into some of these injunctions of these these rules that are coming out that are so um, so destructive. Right. You know, the other thing that I think a federal court uh, will pay attention to, and I hope that these arguments are made, is that, you know, this issue of the definition of waters of the U.S. has been before the U.S. Supreme Court twice. And in the last decision, the Rapinoe's decision, Justice Roberts, um, who is now our Chief Justice, wrote a, a scathing opinion against the EPA and the four for, you know, trying to pass regulations that, again, were so convoluted that uh, the general public and small businesses and the business community is unable to figure out who and where this actually applies. And I think, you know, this is just another iteration of, uh, the EPA trying to do the same thing that they've already done twice and then slapped down, as you said, um, by uh, the Supreme Court. And given the fact that Justice Roberts is, you know, the uh, lead justice on the court now, the chief justice, um, I think a federal judge will look at that very carefully. And I hope that that will play into the decision to give us an injunction and uh, not have this rule apply um, so that, as you said, businesses don't have to spend all this money. And it's, you know, it's businesses in the ag community, it's small businesses. With this interpretation of the rule, um, you know, the uh, jurisdiction of the EPA could extend much greater to much greater than just run, you know, tributaries and running water, what we traditionally think of water. Um, it could expand to ditches and, uh, you know, something that we have here in the West in New Mexico, acequias, um, which are, uh, you know, ditches that, uh, 
and uh, running water um, uh, for drought systems that uh, feed a lot of the ag community here in New Mexico um, that, you know, traditionally had not been under the EPA jurisdiction, that was under the uh, land-grant jurisdiction, that is going to be taken away. Um, and so I think, again, I'm, I'm very hopeful that a federal judge will see all these um, different constituents that are being pulled in to this rule um, that had never been under the jurisdiction of the EPA previously that um, are really severely impacted by this new determination, interpretation. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, because most of these things have been um, under state, under state or local uh, jurisdiction previously, and so again, it's taking that jurisdiction and moving it away from the local and into uh, the federal uh, domain. That's right. It's interesting when you see the map. Um, that had been generated as a result of this new rule. Previously, you know, the EPA jurisdiction over waters of the U.S. and the water issues was tributary. So you could look at the map and see where there were running waterways. Now with the new map, it's basically the entire U.S. Um, because uh, this... this and now I haven't heard about... I, I haven't heard about this map. Uh, is, has the EPA produced this? Is this available online? I'm not aware of that. Um, it's been produced, I believe, by some of the plaintiffs um, uh -huh. in, uh, in the ag community. Um, I believe the uh, New Mexico Cattle Growers Association, who is one of the plaintiffs in the case, um, has that map uh, on on their website. Um, but, you know, obviously the ag community is um, extremely impacted by this, probably more so than even the energy industry. Uh, right. I, I understand are, that they are. Yeah. They're, they're very, very uh, vocal about their concern about this. So, with the energy industry, what is the concerns, uh, what should the energy industry be concerned about? Well, the energy industry, okay, so, you know, water is a big issue, especially here in the southwest. Um, we use uh, fresh water for hydraulic fracking. We are starting to use um, more produced water on hydraulic fracking. So, in order to be able to recycle water, we have to hold water in large containment. Um, and uh, the concern with the waters of the U.S. definition is that these containments, even though they're man-made and holding yeah. dirty, uh, you know, reused water for recycling purposes, could all of a sudden become under the jurisdiction of the EPA, which would mean that we'd need to get permits from the EPA um, in order to have one of these holding facilities for produced water. And this is the EPA, and this is the EPA that is. If you look at overall all the rules, uh, this is the EPA that traditionally is, or typically is, not traditionally, but typically is against oil and gas and against coal. Yes, yes. So you don't you don't have a really you don't have a warm fuzzy relationship there. So you don't have a lot of optimism about permitting. That's right. I mean, we work with the EPA on, uh, you know, Region 6. We work with them on air issues, and that has been an uphill battle. Um, and just the thought of having them get intimately involved um, in our business pertaining to water um, is uh, very concerning. I mean, we work with the um, Department of Interior, obviously, on land issues um, and permitting issues and all that. And this is just another you know, huge bureaucratic agency that would um, get into the oil and gas business or the energy business um, and make things that much more difficult for us to uh, basically make money for the um, American public, you know, in terms of the taxes and royalties and everything that we pay. The more regulation, right. um, you know, more regulation and more bureaucracy means um, less money for the private sector to uh, 
you know, put into capital investment. Do you find that uh, you you work regularly with the Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico? You're working with the producers. Uh, do you find that in general this is an issue that is on their radar at all? And I ask that in part because. I was going to write this week on the Animus River spill, the EPA uh, catastrophe there, and then it was getting so much coverage, I thought, you know, I don't really need to address this. And at the same time, while I was thinking that someone else, a source, sent me links to several articles about waters of the U.S. and the August 28th deadline, um, and I had not followed it. You know, I followed this stuff certainly closer than the average American. I was really not clued in on um, the the severity of this rule and that it was about to be effective. And that's why I ask, do you find that most of the industry folks are really tuned into this? Well, uh, you know, with the drop in commodity pricing, I think industry is, is much more concerned about regulatory costs and burdens, so they are more involved. But generally, you know, waters of the U.S. is something that um, has kept a lot of uh, attorneys employed over the, you know, last several decades. <laughs> And um, it's, it's kind of one of these things where it's like, oh, what's the federal government doing again? Oh, redefining waters of the U.S., which seems to be this nebulous concept that's kind of out there. And, you know, the, but the concern with this rule is that it really does hone down and bring it home to, oh, my goodness, all of a sudden the EPA is going to be, you know, have jurisdiction over a ditch in my backyard or worse, a puddle or a man-made, you know, facility. And so I think um, people are paying more attention to this rule because it is such a terrible piece of regulation. Well, I hope that uh, with this little hour-long show that we put together specifically focusing on this, that the insights that you brought and Lee Fuller's brought in our first segment, we talked more about the Animus River issue, but I hope that it's something that uh, the industry will, will listen to to live or download podcasts, listen to online. Uh, but at this point, there's really not much any of us can do about that, about this rule. Is that correct? Well, there is something that we can do. I mean, IPA and M, we spoke to um, our governor, uh, Governor Susana Martinez, and to make sure that she was aware of what was going on, and of course she was. And she got her um, uh, Environment Department secretary as well as the state engineer to hire outside counsel to, to uh, get involved in this case. Unfortunately, our um, attorney general, because of his politics, refused to get involved in this case. Right, so, yeah. New Mexico is one of the two, I think, that the Attorney General is not on the lawsuits. Right. But, as, you know, as a citizen of New Mexico, if this is an important issue, you know, uh, I think our Attorney General needs to hear that he should be involved in this. Um, and I think that's where we, we you know, um, both the IPA and the membership and the general public should um, be talking to our politicians, um, both state and federal. I think our federal delegation needs to hear as well that this is something that's really important to them, um, and so therefore uh, they are our representatives and we need to hear their voices. So we, we can get involved in this, and I think we really should because it's something that has very um, large impacts on um, any business um, in New Mexico, but even the general public.
Yeah. Well, Kareem Foster, uh, Executive Director, Independent Petroleum Association of New Mexico, you've given uh, good insights on this and brought it kind of down to to our level. We'll have to wait and see what happens, but you're suggesting call the Attorney General, call your federal representatives, and, and uh, let them know that you're concerned about this. Yes, that is my recommendation. And as always, Maria, thank you so much for having me on your program. I know that my members really appreciate everything that you do. Well, thank you. Appreciate your efforts as well. We work well together. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. I've got a new program starting here, June 12th at 11 a.m. It's called The Prologue, and we'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. Join us, won't you, starting June 12th, 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.